Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. So thank you very much for joining us again after our brief autumn hiatus. We hope that you'll recall in our last episode, we looked at a work by Franz Liszt that was inspired by the great violinist slash composer Niccolo Paganini. We discovered that we hadn't done a full bio on Paganini yet, and so we thought that this was the perfect segue into this week's episode. So without further ado, let's learn. Niccolo Paganini was born in 1782 in Genoa, Italy. His father was a dock worker, but also an amateur musician on the side, of course. Surprisingly, Paganini's first instrument was actually the mandolin, and this was thanks to the tutelage of his father. But he soon switched to violin. A real instrument. The mandolin is totally a real instrument! <laughs> Prove it. Don't let the mandolineers hear you. <laughs> Maybe we'll have and to do one we... on the mandolin. <laughs> yeah, maybe we will. Maybe I will prove it, so there. Anyway, Paganini made his first public concert appearance with his violin in 1793 when he was just 11 years old, but he was hailed as a protégé from the start. To enhance the young boy's already impressive skills, he was sent to study in Parma. However, his teachers there, Alessandro Rolla and Gaspare Giretti, were so taken by the child's skill that they declared he could not be taught anything else. So recall in our last episode, our mini-bio of Paganini, we mentioned that he likely suffered from Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which made his joints hyperflexible and gave him long, thin fingers. And it was thanks to these supposed traits that he was able to so nimbly play the incredibly intricate and fast-paced works that he was known for. Of course, while he was alive, the more popular story was that he, or actually rather his mother for him, had made a deal with the devil to give him otherworldly abilities. Paganini denied these rumors, of course. As anyone would do if they had made a deal with the devil. Ah! <laughs> and rather than saying that he had, you know, this deal with the devil, Paganini actually attributed his amazing proficiency to a guardian angel, so quite the opposite. And perhaps it was the angels that were on his side, for later in life, after he had achieved great fame across Europe, Pope Leo XII actually knighted him under the Order of the Golden Spur. Lucifer was technically an angel. Just saying. Mm, okay. Anyways, jumping back into his childhood, when Paganini was 15 years old, after being told that he knew everything already, he was sent around Europe on his first grand concert tour and, of course, performed magnificently. However, the life of fame thrust upon someone at such a young age took its toll. Paganini turned to ungodly vices such as drinking, gambling, and womanizing. And he was once so invested in his gambling that he wagered and subsequently lost his own violin. Oh no. Luckily, he was in the good graces of a wealthy merchant who lent him a Guarneri violin for that evening's concert. He did it on the same day? 
Jeez, Paganini. Well, okay. I think that's what the sources Apocryphal. were Apocryphal. <laughs> you know, it's a story. It was around the same time, at least. You know, he was in town. He lost the violin. Who knows if it was that day or, you know, next week, whatever. He still needed a violin, and he, he did. got one. And he got one that was apparently good enough that he so impressed the merchant with his playing that he was allowed to keep the fantastic new violin free of charge. He did indeed seem to live a kind of charmed life, but all this kind of played into the rock star aesthetic that he was actually cultivating. A slightly tortured artist run down by life but still spreading the beauty of music throughout the land. In spite of his dishonorable hobbies, Paganini found himself in the good graces with the Basciocchi court. He was appointed as the solo violinist and then director of music for the court by none other than Eliza Bonaparte Basciocchi, the sister of Napoleon Bonaparte. In addition to his fame with the public, Paganini was also famous among the performer and composer community throughout Europe. Notably, Paganini financially helped a young Hector Berlioz, who he believed would be the next big thing following in the footsteps of Beethoven. Paganini actually commissioned Berlioz's symphony, Harold in Italy, which is actually a unique symphony that it's more like a violin concerto. Surprise, surprise. Surprise! <laughs> now, even though Paganini had commissioned it, and he did respect Berlioz as a composer, he ended up finding the solo just a little too simple for his taste and never actually ended up performing it himself. Throughout his life, Paganini suffered several health issues. Of course, we already mentioned the suspected chronic joint condition, but he also contracted syphilis in 1822. And if that wasn't bad enough, the treatment for syphilis at the time was mercury which does hey. no favors to one's longevity. So in 1834, Paganini also caught tuberculosis. Miraculously, he did apparently recover from this, but by now his body had really taken a beating. He retired shortly after from public performances and spent his last few years just teaching. Finally, in 1840, Paganini succumbed to his final illness, larynx cancer, that ended in dramatic internal bleeding. Man, that mercury. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I don't know how much we can blame the mercury on. For, for the larynx cancer, I mean, probably quite a bit. Maybe. I don't actually know how the mercury was administered to him. That's true. And also, I'm surprised it was just larynx cancer. There was probably something else going on. Yeah. But, you know, it was the 1800s. I guess they probably didn't know everything that happened with mercury obviously not since they mm -hmm. insisted on using it as a treatment anyway his story doesn't end here religion and the forces of good and evil yet again have come to toy with paganini even in death apparently in a bout of not doing too well just a few days before his death a priest had actually been summoned to paganini's bedside for his last rites in the catholic church however paganini dismissed the priest truly believing that he wasn't yet on his deathbed and therefore did not need the last rites quite yet. However, for all that he was, Paganini was not a fortune teller, and was also, in fact, about to die. When he did pass, there was no priest present, and so in the eyes of the Catholic Church, he could not be buried on consecrated ground. Therefore, his body was embalmed, but left on his deathbed for two months. Ew. Yes, he was finally removed from the house and taken to the cellar, but he stayed there for about another year. 
Ah, again, ew! <laughs> Finally, he was brought back up from the cellar and taken to a leper house. Which, surprisingly, was a disease that he didn't have. <laughs> uh, but it seems that this mistake was soon realized because he was then taken to a vat in an oil factory. And honestly, what were they even doing? <laughs> At this, he was already embalmed. He'd been long dead. What are they doing? I don't know. But after this, he was then taken back to yet another random house near Nice, France, where he'd been living prior to his death. So at least he was still in the same geographic area. Now, this may have seemed like the final unburied resting place for the body for some time. Four years, to be exact. Four years before Pope Gregory XVI took pity on the Knight of the Golden Spur and ordered the body be brought to Genoa. I guess they finally looked at some records and found out that he was an okay guy in the eyes of the church since he was the fancy knight. Well, you say that, but he still wasn't actually buried. <laughs> but finally, in 1876, that is a full 36 years after his death, Paganini's body was finally buried in Parma for good. Ha, good, really. Yeah, but at the request of a Czech violinist, <laughs> Frantisek Ondisek, he was exhumed for viewing in 1893. Why do they want to view I him? I don't know. <laughs> and above all odds, he was kept out of the grave for another three years until... Hopefully they were able to adequately view him. Three years of viewing is quite a lot. <laughs> He was finally buried again in a different cemetery in Parma. This time, fingers crossed, for good. I mean, I didn't find any other sources, but that's true. it's spooky season. It is spooky season, that's true. What kind of corpses are going to be walking around the headstones <laughs> this spooky season? <laughs> and, you know, he might have sold his soul to the devil, so hmm, he might not actually be dead. Maybe that's why he couldn't be buried, because he was still... He was undead. Yeah, still playing the violin. <laughs> but anyway, in his response to this whole account, just... Why? <laughs> just bury him. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, alright, let's change gears here a little bit then. Because in addition to leaving behind a world-traveling body, Paganini <laughs> also left behind a staggering legacy of incredible violin playing. He developed new techniques such as bouncing the bow across the strings called spiccato, left-hand pizzicato, apparently usually pizzicato is just for the right hand, and also incredible new harmonics due to his long fingers. He also employed certain tricks like retuning his violin strings to make certain passages easier to play effectively changing the key of his violin so as not to have to deal with as many sharps, flats, switching of strings, etc. And finally, he employed incredible showmanship. One of his big plays was to actually cut all but one string on his violin while on stage mid-performance and then continue playing whatever flashy firework piece with just the single string left. And of course, the crowds ate this up. That sounds like something that you would see on America's Got Talent, honestly. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's look at one of these firework pieces of Paganini's Variations on E. Palpiti. 
This piece was written sometime around 1828, and it was based on the aria Di Tanti Palpiti, The Heartbeats, from Rossini's opera Tancredi. At this time, Rossini was a major player in the opera realm throughout Europe, and since operas were hard to recreate in a small concert venue or even a home setting, it was very popular for opera composers or other famous composers to create little fantasies or theme and variations on the popular bits of operas. This helped the original production gain popularity, so it was mutually beneficial for all composers involved, and copyright hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of seems like maybe they were granted permission yeah. to, to do such a thing. Or it was just know. sort of a mutually understood, like, you theme and variations me, and I'll theme and variations you sometime down the line. and I'll theme and variations you! <laughs> Is that a threat, Allison? It kind of sounds like a threat. It does. <laughs> you know, like, you brought a knife to a fist fight, so you're going to theme variations. I brought a theme to a variations fight. <laughs> I think it'd be more if you brought a variation to a themes fight. I brought a, I brought a theme and variations to a fugue fight. Oh. I mean, almost the same thing if we really think about it. But anyway... <laughs> that made some music theorists incredibly angry, Allison, so we should probably move on. Hey, I think we've said before fugues are kind of like theme and variations. You know, they can fight us. We will theme and variation our own claims. If you disagree with Allison, moon. please send your strongly worded letters to coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. But not too strongly worded because I'll be very sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having fun. It's all a joke. I'm sorry. But anyway, back to Paganini. Back to Paganini. Speaking of theme and variations, even this derivative work has derivations, as another famous violinist, Fritz Kreisler, actually edited a new version of the piece with some minor changes that kind of make the piece a little more playable. However, today on The Coffee House, we're actually going to be listening to the original Paganini edition. So the piece starts off appropriately with a section labeled Introduction. Not the theme, though. Not the theme, the introduction. And it truly is an introduction, with no relation to the actual Rossini theme that we'll be working with later, although it does seem to have its own theme. However, it's full of cadenza-like passages and begins right away to show how flowery the music and the violinist can be. Of note, right from the get-go, Paganini has instructed the violinist to tune strings differently than normal. The violin part actually ends up being written in A major, with the piano part being written in B flat major. So we've basically made the violin into a transposing instrument, kind of like the clarinet. During this section, the tempo is rather rubato. The violinist is trying to really milk the dissonance and resolution in all the flourishes, and as a result, you'll hear the piano's simple eighth note rhythm slowing down to make way for this creative freedom.
The second section of the work is a recitativo, which fits the genre of an opera's aria. As we've mentioned before in a few of our more opera-centric episodes, recitatives are parts of an opera that aren't exactly singing, but more like melodic talking, like a musical. Usually, they help to <laughs> propel the plot forward, like a musical. But to keep the musicality going, the basso continuo, or in this case, just the piano, will continue to play atmospheric chords, trills, and very light rhythmic motifs. However, since the violin obviously isn't actually saying words to us, this section can also be likened to a cadenza. Of course, a cadenza is an extended passage of improvisation, or at least something that sounds improvised, even if it's written. But it usually features incredible runs and arpeggios up and down the whole range of the instrument. section here particularly is an interesting choice for a chord. Based on this piece being in a late romantic era, we know that they really love their diminished chords. But listen to this section and just imagine what the next chord could be. Did you imagine it being diminished? Well here is actually what's written. Spoiler alert, it's not diminished, but rather just a nice G-flat major chord. So in its own way, it subverts our expectations and still brings a bit of interest to this part of the passage, and it's actually being used for a brief modulation to take us into that G-flat major for a short while. And after the recitativo section, we finally get to our theme and variations. We begin with the theme followed by three variations, and again this theme is taken right from Rossini's aria. We have a little bit of an ABA form going on here. There is A. And then B. And we even get the piano having a little interjection in the B section. Perhaps to give the violinist a quick break before we get into some crazy things. Let's get into those. Our first variation starts out strong. Instead of the quarter note eighth rhythm that we had in the theme, we now have very fast triplet sixteenth notes, and there are double stops. Double stops, of course, being two notes on different strings being played at the same time. Here's a cool double stop trick. The top note stays the same, but the chords underneath are changing. This means that one finger stays steady on the strings while two other fingers have to move around to change notes and still a fast tempo. A humorous part that probably makes for actually a great stage performance 
now comes up in the B section of this variation. The dynamics are very quiet, and the violinist must play downward chromatic lines with staccato markings. This likely employs the spiccato or bouncing of the bow that would come in handy. Variation 2 is labeled un poco lento, a little slow, but you'll hear the notes are still quite fast, because instead of 16ths, Paganini has doubled us to 30 seconds. The violinist is also using harmonics here, essentially altering the string's vibrational length to place several octaves above what would normally be played, giving a scratchy, eerie kind of sound. These very delicate harmonics are already pretty hard to play, but aside from that, Paganini also asks for double-stopped harmonics, which is incredibly tricky, and it seems that the soloist may be running out of fingers to accomplish all of this. Hot take? Maybe it wasn't that Paganini had very long fingers, but maybe he had extra fingers? Well, I didn't find anybody mentioning that fact, so it's probably not the case. Alright. And you know, they had a whole bunch of time to observe that They body. did, they had a lot of time to observe <laughs> his dead hands. <laughs> oh no. Maybe that's, maybe they couldn't figure it out. They kept looking at it and they're like, this can't be right. No, we gotta recount him, boys. We can't put him in the ground yet. <laughs> He's got six fingers on that hand. That can't be right. <laughs> but anyway. Now for the final variation. <laughs> Quasi presto. You know that these notes are going to be flying by. Not only do we have fast bowed notes, but there are quick changes between bowing and plucking for pizzicato. In this variation, we finally get some of those good late romantic diminished chords. But in classic Paganini fashion, what's challenging about these chords is they are <clears throat> triple stopped and span <laughs> about an octave and a half. And Paganini now has some more fun ruining our expectations. He actually throws in a bit of a normal unvaried theme for us to listen to. But it was actually just a little respite before we get into finale territory, where the violin has just running 30 second notes basically to the end, save for a few chords and a fun line of pizzicato right before the ending tonic chords. My fingers are exhausted just listening to that. <laughs> but in the grand scheme of Paganini works, this one actually seems maybe a bit more accessible to the average violinist. Uh, this is, of course, coming from two clarinetists who don't know the first thing yeah, about playing nothing violins. At all. We know nothing at all. <laughs> um, so if you've played this piece before, um, please reach out and let us know how difficult it really is. Because I'm sure it 
I'm sure we're uh, underblowing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if you need more of your Paganini fix, you're in luck. So, recall last time when we had brought La Campanella, which was inspired by the sampling of Paganini's violin concerto in pop music? Well, there is a famous violin duo known as Two Set Violin, and they have recently put up two related videos. Um, one is Paganini reacts to Shut Down, um, Shut Down <laughs> being that pop song, and the other is a music video of Paganini actually writing a reaction song titled Sell Out. Yes, they're both excellent. We'll link both in the episode description, and they are quite funny. And Two Set Violin as a whole, if for some reason you have not heard of them, has some really excellent, humorous classical music videos. So check them out on YouTube. Uh, just a quick plug there. Mm -hmm. um, but also check us out wherever hey. you get your podcasts. Thanks for checking us out. On iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, do remember to review drop ratings that five stars on spotify goes a long way and share us with a like-minded friend family colleague or stranger on the bus hey you know you could go to the two set paganini videos and leave comments on youtube linking to our podcast yes yeah you, <laughs> you could do that that's something that you could do um anyways for the coffee house <laughs> classical music podcast um, which hasn't gone off the rails at all. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Paganini's Variations on E. Palpiti, Opus 13, was performed by Rika Masato and Iri Osuka. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. 